0: Well, good day. Welcome here. I want to ask you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter seventeen. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, uh, or if you look in the Bibles uh, in uh, on your seatbacks, it's page fifty nine. The message this morning morning is entitled "What Do You Expect from God?" And let's just take a moment to pray uh, as we get ready to hear the Lord's Word. Father, I thank you that you speak through your word, and I thank you that you speak into our hearts, and I thank you for what you will say to us in these next moments. Lord, as we have said, you know what we need. You know where we need to be encouraged, or challenged, or receive direction, or where we need inspiration. And Father, by your spirit, I pray we would be, we would be open to what it is that you have for us today through the book of Exodus. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. So a couple of years ago, I was on a trip. I was traveling from a major center to the, to, uh, the border to, to uh, move into the next country. And as we drove through the countryside in uh, the tour group, about 10 of us, uh, in this sort of oversized van, uh, I noticed how barren the countryside was. Like it was, desert would be too lush a term for what we were driving through. Like it was rocks and rocks and some more rocks, and then there was piled up rocks, which they called mountains. There was not a sign of moisture anywhere. Like unless there was, you know, irrigation here and there perhaps, but if there was anything left to nature, no moisture. And I was thinking as we're driving, so if we break down and there's no vehicles coming by, we're going to be in big trouble very soon because it is so dry here and there is no sign of anything anywhere. And then I read Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, you have the people of God traveling through Israel. And as I looked up where they were traveling roughly, like people don't quite know where this area is in Exodus 17. But the guess is that commentators make, I realized that's pretty close to where I was driving. (laughs) Like we were going from Jerusalem to the Jordanian border. And there is nothing out there. And then I read this text. Exodus 17 verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. That is such an understatement. Like, we could say in here, there's no water for the people to drink in Willingdon. And we say, well, let's go down the street and we'll get some water. We'll go to 7-Eleven and get some water. Like, there's water everywhere around Vancouver. Well, when they say there's no water to drink, they're saying there is no water anywhere. There is no water in sight. There is no water to be found anywhere that we would be willing to travel because we'd probably die on the way because of dehydration. So when they're saying there is no water, they mean there is nothing. And this is roughly one and a half million people or more And all of their livestock. This is a large group of people with no water. And when you're traveling, you always have expectations about what happens when you travel. Have you had this experience? I know I've had this experience. You Google someplace and go, yeah, okay, we're gonna stay there. Hey, that looks pretty good. Those pictures look good. Hey, it's got some great ratings. You know, so you go and you travel, and as you're pulling up, you're thinking, is that the place that I booked? Because that's not looking like the place that I booked online. And your kids are looking at you like, where have you taken us? And you get there, and you walk into the room, and you're going, well, that wall's the same color as the online, but this does not look like that five-star rated, reviewed place. This is like a half a star. We have expectations. Expectations. We have expectations when we travel. Last summer, my wife and I, we decided before moving to BC, let's go do the nas- some national parks in Alberta. Some of them, we've been there over 20 years, we haven't gone, and so we said, we, we really need to go visit them. So we thought, let's go to Waterton. That's not far away. And so I get online, and of course, last year, the government gave free park passes uh, to, to all the national parks last year. So everyone said the same thing we did let's go to the parks. So I Google a spot, oh, there's a hotel, 500 bucks a night, or 400 bucks a night. Well, that's not going to happen. No wonder it's free, or it's open. Next option, 50 kilometers outside of the park, in a town that has the, the population of about this section, maybe, you know, Airbnb, 50 bucks, or 60 bucks, whatever it was, and, uh, and it's got five, you know, reviewed, five-star review. Okay, we're staying there, honey. It's a little bit of a drive. We're going there. We pull up and we look at each other as we drive in. Was this a good idea? Who reviewed this thing? <laughs> Certainly wasn't us. That was our first Airbnb experience. If you say Airbnb to my wife, she starts twitching. <laughs> we get in there and, I'm th- and after a while I, I look at our, our room, which is off the living room, wherever, you know, kind of the common area, and uh, I said to my wife, okay. Think missions trip. It'll all be good. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd ever get her to stay at an Airbnb again. But it had a five-star rating, but it didn't get anywhere near our expectations. You know, I realize we come to life, we come to God, I think, with preset expectations. We come to life and God with preset expectations. You know, as we're growing up, We start thinking, you know, get to high school, you start thinking, well, I'm going to do this career track, or I'm thinking about this degree, this job, perhaps, you know, I'll get married around this age, or maybe have kids around this age, and, you know, and if we don't have plans, you know, our mothers do, that's guaranteed, about how this should all work out. But often it doesn't. It's like, oh, well, now what? And then if you come to faith in God, often you have preset expectations, about how that will work. And the first time we run into difficulty, the first time we somehow start to struggle because of a surprise in our health or a relationship goes sideways or work is difficult, we start going, wait a minute. God, I had expectations. I had expectations about what this would look like. And the people of Israel had expectations of what it meant to follow God through the wilderness. And in verse 2 of chapter 17, we hear about them. It says, you know, they know there's no water to drink. So verse 2 says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Now that statement is very mild, it's written in a very Canadian form. Right? We say, Give us water to drink. Except we would say, Please. And I'm sorry for asking. They would be screaming. Like, there is much more to this than what we're reading there. It sounds very polite here. It's not. It's not. The Israelites had high expectations of Moses and of God, and they were short on patience, and it was clear that their expectations had not been met. They didn't want to trust Moses. They definitely didn't want to trust God. Now, it's interesting that, you know, the, the people of God here, they had come into this story coming out of 10 plagues where God showed up miraculously. They came into the story passing through the Red Sea being saved from Pharaoh miraculously. They had come into God through God's miraculous provision and just recently God provided bread through manna and prior to that he provided meat through quail. He had turned uh, bitter water sweet. That's what they're coming out of into this story. And what you notice is actually what is not said in the story. Because all you hear is, give us water to drink. What you don't hear is them saying, hey, you know, God did this stuff before. Maybe we should ask him what he wants us to do this time. What you don't hear is the thing, Moses, you know, before you interceded uh, with God, or for us, with God, to ask him what, we, what should happen. You don't hear that. They don't say, hey, Moses, go pray. Hey, Mo- hey why don't we go pray? How would we approach God? What do you think he wants to do? You don't hear them saying, you know, that quail thing was quite overwhelming. The Red Sea parting was unbelievable. Uh, The manna, I mean, we didn't even know what manna was a week ago, and now we have this. This is amazing, and just enough every day. They didn't say, hey, given what we've experienced, let's go pull up a lawn chair and see what God's going to do this time, because this should be really good. What did they say? Give us water To drink, demanding that God move, demanding that God meet their needs, meet their expectations even more so. So let me ask you do you make demands of God or of God's people or of the church when something goes wrong, when your expectations are not met? Do you remember what God has done in your life in the past? Do you think back about those stories and tell those stories or review those stories? Or do you say like perhaps the people of Israel did this time, where they basically said, you know what? Even though God did the quail, even though God did the manna, the water issue, that's too big for God. God can't handle that. So I think sometimes we say the same thing. You know how we say it? We take control. That's how we say it. Instead of going to God, we say, oh, I'm going to do that. God cannot handle this one. This is too big for God. Or we start looking to see who we can blame. Because I think human instinct is to blame people and to blame God for our problems. Right? We look for a source of our problems outside of ourselves. And we want someone to blame. And we will blame people, We will blame God for our problems. And that's exactly what happened in this case. So Exodus 17 verse 2, the second half of the verse, says, Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? They're blaming Moses. Why do you test the Lord? They're blaming God. They blame the one person that was around for them to blame, their leader. And they blame God, who that leader was following. And the idea of test here." is not just pushback. A lot of commentators would say, this idea is actually the word protest. It's the idea of, we want to protest to manipulate God to give us the outcome that we expected to get when we got here. That's the idea they're talking about. Think of it as they're having their own Kinder Morgan moment. They set up camp, and they're protesting to get the outcome that they want. That's what's happening here with the people of God. You know, so often we know, we know stories of manipulation. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to have your child want to manipulate you, right? And a child will typically pick the busiest place possible to get what they want. And you've probably seen it in a mall somewhere. Some, you know, two-year-old is freaking out and wanting something from their parents. They walk by McDonald's or they walk by the candy store or they walk by the bakery or the toy shop right? And they want that. And uh, I know I've seen the full-on, you know, on the floor, arms and legs flailing. And actually, the interesting thing then is to go, I wonder what the parents are going to do. This ought to be good. I think I'll stop and watch. <laughs> like, are they going to give in to go, this just has to end? Uh, I'm always most impressed with the parents. that could just go, no, that's not going to happen today. And the kid is going, and the nope, that's not going to happen today. I'm like, wow, you have nerves of steel. Way to go. I always want to high-five them because they want to do what's best for the child. As adults, we also manipulate. We're just a little more subtle about it, right? But we still do it. Now, some people will threaten. If you don't do what I want, I'll threaten you. You know, of course, worst case scenario, I'll sue you, I'll beat you up. Others do it more subtly. I'll withhold friendship from you. I'll unfriend you on Facebook, right? There's many ways that we do it. Sometimes with God, we also barter with him. God, if you give me what I want or what I think I need, you know, I'll serve more, I'll give more, I'll show up more. right? I'll do, I'll do something more. We try and do it that way, which is manipulation. And I was thinking about this expectation. So God has been faithful day after day. He has provided them miraculously food and water uh, again and again and again and again. So I was thinking about this, like we've uh, hosted a lot of young men living in our house from anywhere for a couple of weeks to, I think about a year and a half, the longest ones, uh, was the longest stay. Usually it's because my friend or my son would phone up, say, hey, mom and dad, can my friend come live with you? We go, yeah, sure. Let them come live with us. It would be like one of those young men coming to us on the first day there. And we said, okay, we'll provide room and board. And uh, and so the first day at 1159, they walk up and they go, where's lunch? We go, oh, relax, you know, we still have a minute to go here, it's coming, just relax, you can trust us, we said we'd do it. And then you feed them every day, right at 12 o'clock, for a month. And the first, the 31st day then, it's 12.05, and they've, they've come up, and it's 12.05, they haven't eaten yet, and they're going, see, you haven't fed me, I knew you wouldn't feed me, in fact, I think I should beat you up for not feeding me. And you're going, relax, It's just five minutes. The people of God have been fed regularly and repeatedly and miraculously. They get to Rephidim, there's no water. They quarrel with Moses. They try and manipulate God. That's what they're doing. Now, there's places in Scripture where God tells us to test Him. There's places we know God tests us as people. But this testing isn't that kind of testing. This is Manipulation. That's what they're trying to do, in spite of God's goodness and faithfulness and constant leading and guiding again and again and again. So why do they do this? Do you ever wonder about that when you read these texts? Why are they behaving this way? I think last week, uh, Pastor Isaac, as he was looking at chapter 16, he talked about this a little bit, and he said, he made the statement that the people needed to move from having the mindset of a slave to the mindset of of a child of God. The mindset of a slave to having the mindset of a child of God. How does that show up? Verse 3 of chapter 17. It says, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us out of slavery? And our children and our livestock... uh, To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. Suddenly they're looking back at slavery and they're saying, man, that was kind of good back there. Being a slave was a good thing. You see, when we think like slaves, we miss out on God's goodness and care. When we think like slaves, we miss out on God's goodness and care. See, the people didn't know what freedom was and they had this attachment, this twisted comfort from slavery. And that was how they thought and what their identity was. In fact, in a chapter ago, in chapter 16, verse 3, they put it this way. Would that we we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. We sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. They're making it sound like slavery was this unbelievable, beautiful barbecue and buffet. Right? They sat around the barbecue and ate as much as they wanted every day. That's what they're describing here. Why would they do that? Because bondage or slavery with security is often seen to be better than faith than freedom with faith people feel often more comfortable in bondage to their sin or their addiction or the attempts to control things themselves than have to trust god so they feel more comfortable in bondage in slavery than they do in freedom with faith See, slavery is marked by fear and self-preoccupation. Slaves are focused on getting enough, on having enough, and they're worried that anyone else will get more than them. Slaves have a scarcity mentality. Slaves think life is a zero-sum game. What is a zero-sum game? A zero-sum game is when we think that there's only so much to go around, and if you get something good, there's less good for me, because you've taken some of my goodness. If something good happens to you, that's bad news because there's less goodness for me. That's what a zero-sum game is. I've met many people who think like slaves in this world and think life is a zero-sum game. It's a competition for resources. It's I have to get ahead of you. Somehow, I have to get ahead of you because there's only so much to be had. It's that thinking. Some friends of mine a number of years ago were adopting a, a, they wanted to adopt a baby from Haiti and uh, this is 15, 16, 17 years ago, Uh, and there was a change in government, so instead of getting a newborn child, they were going to fly down and pick him up and bring him back to Calgary. Uh, There was a change in government, and they could not go at that time, so actually their boy went into an orphanage for a couple of years, and he was two or three years old when they were actually able to bring him up to Canada. Well, when he was in that orphanage, he had learned how to think like an orphan, how to think like a slave. So they sat him down for the first time, you know, at the dinner table and uh, there's um, a big bowl of fruit, a bunch of apples in it. So he immediately grabs two apples because he didn't know if he, if he didn't do it right then, there may not ever be another chance to get a, a second apple. And they said, we have lots of apples. Like, look, this bowl's here. You know, there's way more food here than people. And uh, there's, there's always, we'll always get more food. Like, don't worry about it it took something like two years to train him to understand that they could trust them to provide him with food. Two years to change the mindset of a slave because that's how he would think because that's what he was trained with from birth to age two or three, somewhere in there. That is the mindset of a slave. As a slave, we can only see how others have failed us. We perceive that everyone else gets better treatment than we do. That were always being slighted and marginalized. A slave is accustomed to others dictating everything uh, in their lives to them. So if you're a slave, they would have known when to get up, exactly what to do that day, the kind of punishment they would receive if they didn't do it, a whip across the back, the fact that there's no extra benefit for doing any more work. They would know exactly how much food they were going to get because it was rationed to them. They knew that there was no hope for tomorrow because tomorrow would be exactly the same as today and there was no hope for their future and for their children. It would be this way for every generation as it had been for 400 years. That's what they were trained. That's what they expected. And unfortunately, that's what they were comfortable with. That's actually what they liked. Slave thinking does not take personal responsibility for anything does not consider what they have to give to other people, lives with suspicion, cannot accept grace and care, and rejects the idea of of trust. In fact, someone who thinks like a slave will sabotage the very people who may be trying to help them. What kind of people are enslaved? All of us can be enslaved. In fact, we walked into this world enslaved. We walked into this world in sin, which is the same as being enslaved and I'm sure we all know people who live with the mindset of the slave or perhaps you can think of time in your life when you did. It's most obvious with people who are stuck in addictions, but anyone who doesn't want to trust God or believe that God is good is actually thinking like a slave. That is the reality for us in our world. And we see that in the people of Israel. They reject God's miraculous provision and are preoccupied with their own needs. They cannot accept His his miraculous deliverance from Israel, or from Egypt or the food that he has provided for them in the past. All they can do is grumble and talk about how good life was back when they were slaves. How good life was back when they were slaves. They cannot envision a better future regardless of the miracles that they have experienced because they're so wrapped up in their own story and now they sabotage the leadership of Moses by quarreling with him. They did not cry out to God to say, God, deliver us like you have in the past. Instead, they demanded water from Moses. I don't know if you have a current struggle where you're saying, man, I have a hard time trusting God with this. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ or never decided to follow him and you're saying, I don't know if I can trust him with my life. Maybe it's a certain situation where you're saying, it's like the water. You're saying, well, God may have met me in the past, but I'm not sure he can do it again. This next thing is too big. I have to take control. I will trust my money or my control or my intellect or my worry in this current situation. So a year ago, I stood up here, almost a year ago, uh, my first message here and I talked about how, you know, everyone told us when we went to BC that BC stands for bring cash. And it's true, it does. Uh, It's definitely a shock to the wallet to move across the mountains to this side. And uh, so we're still wrapping our heads around that. I still am not used to paying uh, PST and GST, like that still messes with me every time. I always go, that's wrong. Oh no, it's not wrong. Okay, sorry. My apologies. You know, every time the bill comes. But we were trying to figure out housing. And at the time, I, last September, I said, you know, we can afford a single car garage. It's above what we, I think we can afford in Burnaby. So we said, God, what do you want us to do? And we would pray, God, how do you want us to do this? Our house in Calgary is worth about. Uh, that to have that same house here, we'd have to double our investment four times, right? The house is worth about four times as much in Burnaby as it is in Calgary. So we went, okay, well, that's not going to work. And uh, and so we'd pray. And I love my wife because she would say, well, it's not our problem, it's God's problem. God, what are you gonna do about it? (laughs) How are you gonna figure this one out? And so we prayed and we got wise counsel from people here in church about which way we should go, what we should do. We believe God was calling us to live near the church in Burnaby, which of course just escalates the issue a little more than uh, uh, you know, being further east. We said, okay, let's keep praying. And so some people from the church came to us and said, hey, we're moving to Abbotsford to a senior's home there. So if you're interested, we have a, a condo in Metrotown. You can take a look at it and uh, we can make a private sale with you. So we looked at it and went, well, this could work. And then they said, you know what? We're not in any hurry. So whatever terms work for you, whenever you want to do this, you know, we're relaxed. We're not moving for six or seven months. And, uh, and so we started talking to them and looked at them and we said, okay, God, we think this can work. And then we started working at the financing and we said, okay, it's going to stretch us, but we think we can do it. And then there's two more pieces that came into play in this story. So first of all, we listed our house in May and in our little neighborhood of a couple thousand people in South Calgary, uh, in our bracket, there were 35 homes for sale. So people had lots of choices our home sold in one week at 98% of list. And we went to our realtor. Is that good? Like we kind of wanted that last 2%. <laughs> and he said, don't be greedy. <laughs> I said, okay, good point. We'll just say thank you, Jesus. And then we started working at this end. And, uh, and we had two things to figure out, because we had a two-story home with a fully developed basement and uh, so we looked at the condo again, and we went, okay, we're going to go down in size about 60%, and we're going to go up in price 50%. <laughs> so if you don't know math, that's a bad formula. <sighs> <laughs> okay, we can, okay, it's good. I don't want to do laundry, or not laundry. I don't want to do yard work. I don't want to deal with this other stuff. That's good. So we were working through that and, uh, and, and through those challenges. And then we got a phone call from a friend who lives outside of Vancouver, and he said, you know, I I was thinking about your situation, what do you think if I co-invest in the condo condo with you? And I said, let me think about that, yes. (laughs) He said, whatever percentage it is of the condo now, same percentage when you sell. If it goes up, it goes up, if it goes down, it goes down. And so it went from really stretching to going, yeah, that's... That's great. We can do that. So we said, Lord, we think you want us in Burnaby. We know we want to be good stewards. We know you have a bigger plan in place than we understand. And so we're going to pray for you to to show us how to do things. We believe we should live close to the church for ministry. That's why we moved here. And so God said, okay, I got a place for you. It's just up the street. It's everything that you need because when God answers your prayers it's not always everything you want but he knows what you need and that's what he did and we are so grateful did we have to go through worry? yeah we worried did we go through mental gymnastics on numbers? absolutely did we have to process the thought of downsizing that dramatically at a stage in life when we hadn't thought about it? definitely we gave away so much stuff Value Village is full of our stuff in Calgary (laughs) <laughs> My children have stuff they didn't want. It's like, here, here's some more. Well, we have a good, good father that we can trust because he calls us to think like children of the king and the king has all the resources in the world. He is gracious. He loves you. He does want to bless you, but he will do what's best for you, not necessarily what you want or what makes you comfortable. That's the reality. But the people of Israel couldn't see this. Moses couldn't see it. So in verse 4 of chapter 17, it says, So Moses cried, out, cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? You notice Moses didn't pray for them. He didn't petition God. He didn't say, hey, you know, God, you came through before. What do you think? What should I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So in the midst of the protesting, in the midst of the quarreling, I would say Moses took his eyes off God. He, took, he placed his eyes on the people and the problem around him. He feared for his very life that, that was at risk because of doing his job. And when it says that they wanted to stone him, that was the way that they took care of things in the Middle East. And actually, they often still do today, if they're, if they're putting justice into their own hands. So for stoning, that doesn't, that's not like, oh, well, that's a strange form of a threat? No, that's an everyday threat. That's how they deal with discipline. And you'll still see that happen today in the Middle East in various places. And so Moses comes to God. He doesn't come in faith. He says, Hey, these people want to kill me. They want to kill me. What am I supposed to do with these people? And I think by inference, as Moses has said other times, These people you gave me. Remember how we blame God and blame people? The people aren't blaming Moses and God. Moses is blaming the people and God. Right? It's always going out. It's always going out. That's what he's doing. And in the past, Moses has said, like in chapter 16, uh, he acted as the people's intercessor. In chapter 15, chapter 16, he prayed for them. He said, hey, people, let's ask God. Like, relax. None of that in this case. There's none of that. Moses panicked. And he showed a lack of confidence actually in God's provision for him and for the people. Because of the emotion around him, because of the fear in him, Moses actually did the same thing the people did. And this rebellion is remembered throughout the Bible, both as the people's rebellion and as Moses' failure. That's how it's written up. But God is gracious to the people And God is gracious to us, even when we grumble and protest. See, in spite of our unbelief, God is gracious and cares for us. In spite of our unbelief, God is gracious and cares for us. And that's exactly what he does in this text. So in verse 5 and 6, it's interesting that uh, God doesn't say anything about the grumbling people. He doesn't give Moses crowd control advice. Uh, He doesn't tell tell them what to do with the people. He just kind of ignores the people. And it says, The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff uh, with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God immediately gives Moses direction. He immediately says, Take that staff that you've used before and go and get some elders, go and get some witnesses. He doesn't say, take the people with you. He just says, go and get, I think he says, get some witnesses who can go back to the people and say, hey, this is what we saw God do. And God in his graciousness doesn't say, well, go do it and you know, I'll, I'll help you from where I am. The Lord says, I will stand before you at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. He actually is going with Moses and I will be there. Even though the people have been unfaithful, Moses, even you have been unfaithful, though, even though you didn't trust me, I will stand there before you because I have a bigger plan. There's a bigger story at play here. And Moses, I will stand before you. And I will work through you, and there will be this miraculous provision when the rock is struck, and the water will flow. And remember, one and a half plus million people and all their livestock. This is a lot of water that is flowing. And that's exactly what happened. There was no well to dig. The water came from a place where there was no water, came from a source where there was no source, and God created that source. And actually, this became a prophetic declaration of what God was going to do in the future. Because in striking that rock, God uses that analogy later on for Jesus Christ as our rock. And He says, when He struck that wa- rock and the water flowed, it was the same as when Jesus was pierced for our sins and the blood flowed out of Christ. And Jesus became our living water, as I read about earlier, out of John chapter 7. And Paul, teaching the church in Corinth, connects all the dots for the people in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First four verses, Paul says, "...I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses." All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. So it's interesting that out of this problem, out of this unbelief, out of this sin, God creates this moment that, that he projects forward prophetically into the future when Jesus is there and then Paul refers to that same moment as he looks back at history and say, this is how God has planned to work things out for all of history, which is for Jesus to be your living water, which is exactly what Jesus refers to in John 7. Again, He says, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink for the scriptures declare rivers of living water flow from his heart. Jesus is your nourishment, friends. Jesus is the one who is your source of life. Jesus is the one who meets you in your place of need when you're saying, I don't know if God can handle this one. I don't know if this issue is too big. Jesus says, yes, I can handle it because I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all of my Father's resources are at my disposal. I know you and I love you and I've invited you into relationship with me and I've made that possible by my own death and resurrection. The living water is there, friends. What limits it is us when we quarrel, when we protest, when we try and manipulate and we say, Jesus, you're not big enough for this one. You can't handle my sin. You can't handle my situation. You can't handle my relationship. You can't handle my past. I need to do this myself, which is the greatest act of self-delusion and of slavery there is when we think that we, in our resource, somehow can bring living water out of the stones of our life more than Jesus can. That is the beauty of what God is doing here, friends. It's absolutely beautiful and glorious. Jesus is the king of kings. His grace and resources are endless. There is no competition for grace with him. He will remove your shame, take care of your sin, deal with your fear and give you new life. He will step into your situations. And in our situation, I mean, it was 10 months, 11 months. We're like, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? The formula is upside down. And we trust God. So even though we've, we've had to extend ourselves in ways we never thought at this age, we went, God has the future. He's got our retirement plan. We're good to go. He has the resources and the understanding that's so much greater than our own. And the beauty of texts like this is that they show us ourselves, they hold up a mirror of Jesus and of us. And we can see ourselves in the slavery and we can see ourselves in the opportunity to move out of that slavery. And we can see when we go back to slavery, we think, man, that was so good back there. That bondage was so good. And he says, no, come and live free as a child of God. Find your identity as a child of God. And the text can teach us these lessons again and again and again. You see, we can learn from the mistakes of others and choose to follow Jesus today. And this beautiful book is so full of stories of people who can be our mentors because we can look at their lives. And when you look at a mentor, you often ask, what did you learn? How did you handle this situation? What did you do? And that's exactly what this book is. is a book full of mentors for us. So we don't have to repeat the same mistakes they did. And we can choose to follow Jesus today. We don't need to go back to our pain. We don't need to go back to our addictions. We don't need to go back to our slavery, friends. We can step out in Christ and say, Jesus, come and meet me in this today. And if you don't see the way out, you say, Jesus, carry me through. I need your strength to carry me through because I trust you for my future. I love the words of uh, author Michael Walzer in his book, Exodus and Revelation. He says, there's three lessons we can all learn from the Exodus event. First of all, wherever you, is, wherever you are, it's probably Egypt. Wherever you are, it's probably Egypt. We're all born in Egypt. We're all born in slavery. At some point in our lives, we were all in Egypt, and some of us are there today. Some of us have actually gone back to Egypt today. We're all in Egypt. The other thing he says is, secondly, there is a better place, a world more attractive, a promised land that God invites us to. Friends, that is the kingdom of God that Jesus invites us to enter. And when you become a Christ follower, you enter into his kingdom and it'll be here in all its fullness and all its glory when he returns. When there will be no more pain and suffering, when all things will be made right, when justice will be carried out once and for all. And he says, third, the way to that promised land is through the wilderness. There is no other way. Why? Because we have to learn to think like a child of God rather than like a slave. And our default tends to be towards slavery. Slavery. Because we want to control, we struggle to trust. To make the transition from low trust, high expectation. And when you have a child, when you become a child of God, your 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 mindset changes to high expect to high trust and high expectation. Why do you have high expectations still? Because you serve God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You should have high expectations because of who He is. Because He owns everything, all resources His. He is not stingy. He is gracious. He is wonderful. He loves you. And he will meet you exactly where you are in Egypt or in the desert and bring you to the promised land that he has invited you to through relationship in Jesus Christ. And the promise will be fully arrived when he returns. But until that day, he will carry you through. Whatever your struggle is, whatever your questions are, he says, come into my community. Walk in community together with brothers brothers and sisters who are my own who I'm forming into my people, into my children, to think like my children, to think like children of God, daughters and sons of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, because that is who you are created to be by him, and that Jesus made it possible. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer. If you never made that decision to become a child of God, I'm going to just pray a real simple prayer. You can pray with me just quietly. And, uh, and also I want to pray over you for those of you who are struggling. Our welcome center is open. There's people there who would love to talk to you and pray with you if you have further questions or how to be, what it means to be a Christ follower. They're, they're there specifically for that purpose. And it's just out the door and to your right. Let's pray. So for those who want to accept Christ, just pray this with me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please forgive my sin. Please take away my shame. Please deal with my fear. Come and fill me with your spirit, with new life, with living water. Guide me in what it means to follow you, to understand that, to become, to have the mind of a child of God rather than a slave. Be my friend to walk with me. Be my leader for so I can follow you and be my guide so I have wisdom in the journey. Give me the courage to walk with God's people in authenticity and to live what you have called me to live with high trust and high expectations. Father, I pray for those here who are struggling, who struggle to trust you to deal with their current situation. Lord, I pray that they can give that to you to receive your living water, to share that with a friend, to walk in community. Father, for those who are just struggling to put one foot in front of the other one day by day, Father, I pray for the strength to trust you day in and day out. Father, for those who need to release control, I pray they would give it to you. For those who need to be in a place where they just need to step out in faith rather than trying to make everything happen on their own, Father, I pray they would give it to you. You are a good, good Father who has good gifts for his children. You give us what we need, Father, not necessarily what we want or for our comfort, but you desire to raise us up into men and women of God by your power, and I thank you for that. And Father, for those who are celebrating today, I pray that as your spirit pours into them the good things that they are enjoying, that they will share those with others, both here today and as they go into their homes and into their week into their workplaces, to be your agents of reconciliation, wherever you would take them. because you call us to be people who represent you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in every phase of life. And I thank you for that privilege and that honor. Be with us as we go into this day and this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.